Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Diva podcast. I'm your host, Monica Reinagle, and today I have two listener questions. The first one from Tal has to do with sugar. The second one from Ella is about protein, but both Tal and Ella are asking kind of the same thing. Is there any benefit to spreading your intake out over several meals as opposed to eating that same amount in a single sitting? So let's start with Tal's question about sugar. Should I spread out my sugar consumption? For example, after eating dessert, is it better to wait a couple of hours before having a coffee with sugar? That way, I'd get less of a sugar spike. Specifically, Tal seemed to be concerned that higher blood sugar spikes might lead to insulin resistance. Now, just to quickly review, insulin is a hormone that's released by the pancreas, and it helps clear glucose out of the bloodstream and into the cells, where it can be used for energy or stored for future use. Insulin resistance means that our cells have become less responsive to the effects of insulin. As a result, our blood sugar levels remain inappropriately high. Insulin resistance can be a precursor to full-blown type 2 diabetes. And a lot of us worry that eating too much sugar or eating it too often is going to increase our risk of insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes. But now we understand that it's actually more the other way around. Insulin resistance, or poorly controlled diabetes, results in chronically high blood sugar. It turns out that eating a lot of sugar, or even just eating foods that are rapidly converted into blood sugar, such as white bread, are not the primary factors in the development of insulin resistance. The primary factors are excess body weight, especially if you carry it around the waist, and a sedentary lifestyle. Age and genetics also play a role. We may be genetically disposed to insulin resistance, but either way, our cells may become more resistant to insulin with age. Now, that doesn't mean that eating a lot of sugar doesn't have any consequences. If your body weight starts to drift up, whether that's from overeating sweets or overeating any other food, that would increase your risk of insulin resistance. In other words, for those who do not have diabetes or insulin resistance, the short-term impact of sweets on your blood sugar is probably not as big a concern as the long-term impact of sweets on your body weight or on your nutrition. Because if you're eating a lot of sweets, they may well be crowding other more nutritious foods out of your diet. And by the same token, for someone who does not have diabetes or prediabetes, the timing or the spacing of your sugar intake is probably not as important as the total amount of sugar that you're taking in. If you're interested in improving your insulin sensitivity, I have three strategies to suggest. First, regular exercise improves insulin sensitivity in those both with and without impaired insulin responses. Regular intake of artificial sweeteners, 
in particular, sucralose, which is sold as Splenda, has been shown to have negative effects on insulin sensitivity. And that might be just one more reason to limit your intake of those. And finally, an underappreciated way to improve your insulin sensitivity is to space your meals out more. For example, eating two or three larger meals with several hours between them instead of grazing throughout the day can improve your insulin sensitivity. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Now, let's turn to the question about protein. Ella wrote to ask for clarification about something that I've talked about before, the potential benefits of distributing your daily protein foods more evenly throughout the day, rather than eating most of your protein at dinner, which is the typical pattern here in the U.S. Ella's question offered the additional attraction of allowing me to wade into a marital dispute. You know how much I love to do that. My husband is on a huge protein kick, she wrote. And when I saw him eating a protein drink, eggs, and yogurt all at the same meal, I mentioned, lovingly, of course, what you have said about the added benefit of spreading your protein intake out across meals versus eating it all at once. Well, he was very eager to tell me that that's actually not true, that the body can store amino acids in the small intestine, and then the body can utilize them later. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Now, this does not happen very often in the nutritional marital disputes that I'm called in to mediate, but in this case, both Ella and her husband are actually correct. The body does store amino acids for future use. And the oft-repeated dictum that the body can only absorb or utilize 30 grams of protein in one sitting is a misunderstanding, or at least a gross oversimplification. Increasing the amount of protein in a meal has been shown to increase muscle protein synthesis, but only up to a certain point. After that threshold, adding more protein to the meal does not lead to more muscle protein synthesis. In younger folks, that threshold is about 25 grams of protein. And by the way, that is assuming a high quality protein source like whey protein or chicken or beef. If you were getting your protein from plant sources, you might need more grams of protein to hit that threshold. But for people over 40, it can take 30 or even 35 grams of high-quality protein to hit that peak muscle protein synthesis threshold. And this phenomenon is referred to as anabolic resistance, similar to insulin resistance, where the cells become less responsive to the effects of insulin. Anabolic resistance is when the cells become less responsive to the effects of protein. In any case, there is a threshold beyond which eating more protein at a single meal doesn't further enhance muscle protein synthesis, but that's not to say that it can't be utilized. Dietary protein 
serves more than one function in the body. Yes, it is used to build and repair muscle, but dietary protein also supplies the building blocks for enzyme and hormone production. Proteins are involved in cell signaling and repair and brain function. And of course, protein can also be used as a source of fuel or energy. So when people say that the body's ability to utilize protein tops out at 30 grams per meal, what they really mean is that the body's ability to utilize protein to synthesize muscle tops out at about 30 grams per meal, but the rest will be put to other purposes. Now, it sounds like Ella's husband, what with the protein shake and the eggs and the yogurt all at the same meal, he may have been over that threshold. And Ella's right. In terms of building muscle, you'd get more benefit from eating two meals, each containing 30 grams of protein, than from eating a single meal containing 60 grams. But that may only be relevant for people who can't or just don't want to eat more than 60 grams of protein per day. If they're trying to maximize their lean muscle, they'd really be better off splitting that up over two meals than eating it all at a single meal. But for people who are happy to eat 100 or 120 or even more grams of protein per day, exceeding that threshold of 30 or 35 grams of protein at any given meal probably won't be as much of an issue because they're still likely to be hitting that optimal muscle building dose two or three times a day. And just in case you're wondering, as I was, my protein researcher friends estimate that you need to have at least two hours between meals in order to reset that muscle protein synthesis capacity. If you're interested in more information on how to build muscle with less protein, I have a link in the show notes to a previous episode that I've done in that topic. And for those interested in more information on building muscle on a plant-based diet, I've got a link to an article on that. But here's just a final thought on this. If you take in more protein than your body needs for its various protein-specific functions and more than it can put to immediate use building muscle, the rest will be used as fuel, just like carbohydrates and fats. And if you consume more calories than your body needs to fuel its activities, well, then that excess energy will be stored as fat. And that's true whether the excess calories come from carbohydrates, fats, or proteins. However, Protein does offer a couple of potential advantages as an energy or calorie source, particularly for those who are trying to lose weight or trying to avoid gaining it. Protein requires more energy to digest. So a higher protein diet will give your metabolism a modest boost. And I don't want to overstate the impact of that because it is relatively modest. Far more relevant in terms of weight management is the fact that calories from protein keep you full for longer than the same amount of calories from fats or carbohydrates, and that can make it easier to eat just a bit less. Now, of course, sometimes we do eat for reasons other than hunger, such as stress or boredom. And a lot of the people that I work with on weight management tell me that emotional eating is an even bigger challenge than managing their appetite. And if that sounds like you, you may be interested in a program that I'm going to be offering on overcoming stress and emotional eating. We're kicking it off next week, and you can find all the details on that at wayless.life slash stress. If you have a nutrition question, or even better, a nutritional marital dispute, you can send it to me at nutrition at quickanddirtytips.com, or 
Leave it on the Nutrition Diva listener line. That's 443-961-6206. And you might hear your question featured in a future episode. Nutrition Diva is a quick and dirty tips podcast. It's audio engineered by Nathan Sems with script editing by Adam Cecil. And big thanks also to Morgan Christensen, Holly Hutchings, Davina Tomlin, and Cameron Lacey. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.